Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 2021. And... Hey. What? Sorry? Hey. What? What are you doing? The movie? Promising Young Woman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is a very special episode of Unspooled. It's been a weird uh, movie year, Amy. Uh, I feel like I have not been totally on top of all the movies that are up for awards and Oscars. And uh, I know that you have to be because you are voting in the L.A. Film Critics Association and you're awarding people things. But I think for most people... And we the Nationals. Feel... I'm a National. And the nat- okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. All right. Um, but I feel like I think a lot of people I've been talking to feel a little bit lost. Like, where are they falling in? Like, there's so much stuff coming out, but there's not that much fanfare and things are coming and going and... And I think it can be a little bit overwhelming. So we thought that it might be fun to deviate from our schedule uh, and do a special episode to focus on a movie that you and I both really loved that is up for some awards. And we might do this again, but this is kind of a uh, a bonus episode, if you will, about Promising Young Woman. Yeah, let's bonus it up. Let's bonus it up. And you know, when we get closer to our very late Oscars, I think we should talk Oscar films. There's, a, there's a bunch of stuff that's very worthwhile. Yeah, and I think it'd be fun to you know, take a moment to highlight. So this episode won't be our traditional, will it go to space? It's more just a chance for us to kind of have a chat about a movie that we both, uh, I think, you know, let's get right to it. Like, really liked a lot. And I thought, I mean, for me, it's a movie that I felt incredibly engaged by. And I and it made me, like, sit on the edge of my seat for the entire time. Uh, so I, I couldn't wait to talk to someone about it. I'll be that person. I will be I love it. that person. Well, technically, you were that person because when the movie was over, I texted you immediately. I was like, have you seen it? <laughs> and and I love having these conversations. So uh, let's start off with 
some year facts. The year, uh, if you didn't know, is 2020. And my gosh, what was going on in 2020? Well, uh, Parasite uh, swept the Oscars. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry step away from the royal family. The president's impeachment trial ends in acquittal. Uh, There were wildfires in Australia. Uh, There were wildfires in California. Uh, Harvey Weinstein went on trial. There are murder hornets. Uh, Kobe Bryant died. Uh, COVID-19 sweeps the globe. The world is upended by the novel coronavirus, and every single facet of life is affected from how and where and if we work. Uh, Pollution is lessened to a certain extent because of decreased traffic, and there was even a toilet paper crisis. In addition to millions dying worldwide of the virus, uh, we said goodbye to Chadwick Boseman, Eddie Van Halen, Alex Trebek, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there was a massive outrage spurned by the inequitable treatment of our black brothers and sisters by law enforcement leads to a national protest and marches across this country. And it was also an election year. I would say, Amy, that this is a year where people were angry and activated and uh, we're still feeling the effects of it. Um, But This is a great movie to kind of reflect this energy and attitude, oddly, I I believe. Uh, But uh, tell people who's in it and and, and what it's about. Wow. Yeah, that recap feels extra old to me because To Be Promising Young Woman is one of the last things I got to do in the before period. I saw it at Sundance 2020 um, when everything was fine. And I thought we'd have a nice normal year lying out ahead of us. And I could not wait to talk about this film and see it in a theater with a bunch of people, which alas. Had, didn't, did not get to happen again after Sundance. Um, Promising Young Woman. It is written and directed by Emerald Fennell. This is her debut. Welcome, Emerald. We are glad to have you. So the story in Promising Young Woman. Uh, an ex-medical student named Cassie is on a personal vendetta. Every night she dresses up um, in a, as a different character. She goes to a bar. She pretends to be drunk. She waits for someone to take her home. She very del- deliberately does nothing. It doesn't try to kiss them back, doesn't try to flirt with them, acts comatose and sees how long until these nice guys who were played by everybody from Adam Brody to Christopher Mintz-Plasse will go before taking advantage of her and then suddenly sobering up and really just yelling at them, I think, is all she does. It's a little hard to tell. But in any case, this is a film that is about revenge or really the need for justice. You know, Cassie is played by Carrie Mulligan and her best friend from medical school that we never see was gang raped and videotaped at a party when she was in college. And this is her need to exact some sort of vengeance or at least get men to realize they can't behave the way that they've been behaving and maybe try to get the people who were involved in the crime to at least say they're sorry, to at least realize what all they did. And her quest for that to happen is hard and painful, and we are going to be having spoilers in this conversation. So if you have not seen it and do not want it spoiled, I am warning you now. I am warning you absolutely now. I'm going to talk about this ending. It will happen. I'm not going to do it right now, to. but it will happen. No, I mean, I think that we've already spoiled a lot of it, uh, really, and even in that description. I went in knowing nothing about it, but uh, it is a movie that I love that people kind of probably went in thinking one thing and getting something completely different out of. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I went into this movie assuming I was not going to like it. I thought that this was going to be basically like a a 70s rape revenge ripoff for the modern era. I feel like I've seen a lot of films recently 
say assassination nation a couple of years ago for one that take like feminist ideas and turn them into Twitter memes, like mm. clap, clap, look at that girl go like slay queen. And it's like an empty hollow kind of feminism. And this movie I feel like is actually somebody really bearing their soul, which maybe that makes it lovely for all the uh, Taylor Swift fans out there. Another fellow blonde who likes to reveal the dark parts of the human psyche and what it's like to be a girl in this very modern and confusing age. Promising a woman comes out on Christmas Day, just as Taylor Swift's Willow is number one on the charts. And if it was an open shut case, I never would have known from the look on your face, lost in your current like a priceless wine. The more that you say I think before we even have this conversation, I just want to take a moment to talk about how people might know Emerald Fennel. Uh, Emerald Fennel uh, is also an actress and probably an actress on one of the most popular shows of the current moment, which is The Crown. You know, she plays uh, Camilla Parker Bowles in that. Uh, She also is a writer who uh, worked with Phoebe Waller-Bridge on Killing Eve. Uh, And that's a show that I think shares an interesting similarity to this film Uh, in in a grand scheme. I think it it talks a lot about uh, feminism and revenge and obsession and addiction to jobs and and how a singular focus can take over your life on kind of both sides and, and the relationships that we get in. So I thought that was really interesting to see the evolution of this person and I, and again you got to tip your hats to the Brits they're right in the direct and they're doing the whole thing and um it just feels like this is a, a nice companion piece to the first season of Killing Eve which I absolutely loved huh I've never seen that and now you make me really want to see that I, I was struck that she played Camilla Parker Bowles because I am I suppose not a not very closeted Camilla Parker Bowles fan just in general I like her I think she's a really a uh, controversial, misunderstood, normal girl. And I will just say it right now. I think she and Prince Charles are in love. And I think if they had just been able to get married right in the beginning, none of these horrible things would have happened. Yeah. No. Uh, look, I mean, true love. We're talking about it right now in our miniseries. Like, you know. Uh, you wanted to be your tampon. That's the most romantic thing. Who's Who says that? <laughs> have you ever said that to a lady? I haven't, but I enjoy that idea. I mean, it's it's a very romantic uh, point of view, I guess. I, uh, I don't know. It seems Army Hammerish. Do you think you could say that like you are the prince? Could you say that in a, in a royal it, accent? Oh, look, the your tampon. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, this movie, um, I will say I knew nothing about. I was excited about it because the cast list is really fascinating. Like, it's, it is a... Who's who of people that I really like, um, you know, uh, starting off with Carrie Mulligan. I think that she is phenomenal. We'll probably spend a lot of this episode just speaking about how good she is and how specific she is in this film. But I also just want to call out some side performers because this movie really is um, a series of vignettes for the most part. Like everyone has a moment, whether it's Alison Brie or Adam Brody or uh, Sam Richardson, uh, Christmas Plots. They, everyone Alfred gets- Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina, so good. Of course, like every time this our main character goes to a location, she has this 
scene. And, you know, and, and the one, the, the characters I love so, so much in this are her parents as well, played by uh, Clancy Brown and Jennifer Coolidge, who are kind of playing against type. They're a much more grounded. Um, there's not a sadness, but there's a, there's something really warped about the whole life that she's in. And I want to kind of break this down with you, but uh, I, I couldn't help but be brought in just by the cast. I'm like, wow, all these people together, what are they going to make? And I, like you, thought this was going to be a a Me Too death wish, right? Like mm-hmm. a, you know, we're going to go out. It's going to be like that stupid movie with Jennifer Garner. And I love Jennifer Garner, no offense, but like that taken with a woman, you know, like that kind of like it just exactly. felt exactly that, that kind of like BS, like. She's tough. She's in black leather pants. She's in spike heels. She's stabbing people with spike heels. That kind of stuff that I've just never, ever, ever respected as like a feminist movie. No. And I think, you know, the way that the movie has been marketed to a certain extent, um, it looks like a horror. Like the movie poster looks a little bit like Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's like these, you know, this kind of image of her. But the other one that I saw the most was her in this nurse's costume with uh, a multicolored wig. And so I think... Uh, some of the people I talked to really came into this film with a different notion about what it was going to be. And I've talked to people who straight up do not like this movie. Uh, Our producer, Josh, not a fan of this movie, but that's okay. I think a good movie should have people not liking it and loving it, right? Like, I feel like that's that's a sign of a of a good film. It makes you think on some level. Yeah, when Carrie Mulligan shows up in this movie in that nurse costume and that wig, I had that thought, oh my God, this is my Joker movie. This is the female Joker movie. You know, she walks up to the house and that same kind of behind the back shot of Heath Ledger in Mm -hmm. um, The Dark Knight where you're over the shoulder of the nurse that you know is not a nurse and you know bad things are going to happen. I was like, oh, that is a one for one Joker nod, which it wasn't. I actually asked Emerald about it. She was like, what are you talking about? But to me, that makes this my Joker film. Wow, I'm surprised that it's not. And, I'm, and I know that you got to talk to Emerald and Carrie Mulligan. And we'll play a little clip of that later because you got right in there. And I've done a lot of reading about this film. All right, so let's just open up at the top of the movie because I think that the opening of this film really sets the tone. This movie is quiet. It is intense. And like I said, it really pulls you to the edge of your seat in a way that I haven't felt at home watching a movie. Uh, and I've watched a lot of movies at home in the last year. Um, but we open up on this office party and we meet this cast of guys who are not overly douchey, but they're they're They got a little bit of energy and a and little s- bit, but they're not too bad. It's not like sneer, sneer, snidely whiplash. Bitches no, and hoes. like they're on the spectrum of pretty normal. And Adam Brody is actually, I think the nicest one of the three. Like, he kind of steers the conversation into being more respectful at first. He's the nice guy. They're kind of good. She's, this film is going after the nice guy. Yes. This movie is really about taking down people who are complicit, people who are silent, people who can go to bed at night thinking they're doing the right thing or not feeling guilty about their actions. And I've never seen a movie truly tackle that type of person because they're not they don't appear like villains and i think it's like what i just it's not painted black and white right it's right. not like she's the hero and they're evil evil and beyond redemption right yeah. because it, i mean that she's at least not interested in making it that simple i agree and i think you know i'm not i'm trying to 
talk about this movie in a way that is obviously respectful to victims of sexual assault. I'm just saying that the way that they set the world is these are people who don't feel like they're doing anything wrong and people that you probably would see in your life. And they would be the people at the table saying, no, no, I believe in this. You know, they they are, you know, I think it shows the difference of what people present themselves as and who people actually are. And, and that is a really interesting distinction about this movie and what they're going after. And I think it makes the the entire story that much more engaging. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we see Carrie Mulligan, the first time we see her, just drunk and passed out uh, across the room from these guys. And, you know, they're talking about how cute she looks and and there is something and about it. And they're kind of judging her, like how she let herself get so drunk. Yeah. And there's something where immediately I tense up and going, oh, yeah, yeah, this is going to be one of these movies where this is going to be the opening scene and she's going to get raped and I'm going to I'm going to have a hard time watching this movie because you feel like that's where it's going and Adam Brody brings her home. This is, a, again, this is like the James Bond opening sequence. This is like the, you know, we're catching the movie midway through and he's bringing her home. He is getting her more drunk than she is and he starts, you know, making out with her, going down on her and then this moment happens. This silence, this pin drop where the act is dropped she is not drunk at all. And she asks simply, what are you doing? And then I think at this moment, you're like, oh, fuck, this is the movie. And it changes about 10 more times after that. But that moment to me made me miss being in a movie theater hands down. I was like, why am I not in a movie theater right now? Because this is a movie throughout that I wanted to be next to people to feel the gasp. I wanted to feel next to people to feel that energy and that anxiety. Like uh, that, that from that moment, I was hooked. Yeah. And think about how she's taking the power back in that scene. You know, she's not just like, well, while you're distracted trying to molest me, I'm going to knee you in the face. She's just saying, what are you doing? She's literally saying, like, I'm holding up a mirror to your actions right now. You think you're the good guy who's taking me home? Really? Who are you? She looks at him clearly. And there's this way of her main weapon is that she just looks at men. She makes them look at what they're doing. You know, she's like, here's your behavior. And I'm just going to stare at you. Oh, you're a construction worker yelling me at the, yelling at me on the street. I'm not going to scream something back at you. I'm just going to stare at you and make you aware of who you are and what you're doing at this moment. And that is this punishment that makes them go insane. Well, but what this movie even does a step further, and I agree with you, is by doing that, she makes the audience guess like what is going on. When she first yells at Adam Brody, or not yells, just simply says, what are you doing? 
we cut out of that scene. And now we're in the next morning after she's walking around, uh, eating a hot dog with, you know, the ketchup coming down her hand, looking like mm-hmm. blood. And we're like, oh, shit, she's a murderer. This is a, that's when I'm like, oh, this is a revenge movie. This is a, she's going and killing these guys. And she stares down those construction workers. And then we see her go to her room and make a mark in a diary that she's been doing this. And you're like, oh, fuck. Like, that's what this is. And it's interesting that. And the marks are all color coded. Like, yes. And you don't know what they mean. And you actually never know what they mean. I've, I asked Emerald about that when I spoke to her. And she was like, that is a thing I'm just going to keep to myself. She will never tell you what the colored marks mean in oh, the I script. And isn't that image of her with the hot dog kind of like this fucked up modern breakfast at Tiffany's? Like woman in the city yeah. breakfast at Tiffany's coming home, eating her croissant, looking at the jewelry. But this time it's Carrie Mulligan with a nasty ass hot dog. And I say that as a person who deeply loves hot dogs, looking threatening. It's it's this modern ingenue kind of twist that I just love. I mean, but can I just say that the imagery there to me is also she's eating a dick. I mean, in oh, a yeah. way, like, you know, and it's like, it's, you, you, you look at this woman and we assume the worst and we don't find out until later in the film what she's actually doing to these men, which is like you said, she's shaming them. Like she is shaming these men. She's not doing anything that's leaving any permanent damage, but just instilling a fear and holding a mirror up to him. But because she holds herself with so much power, I think that we're so accustomed in watching film where we're like, oh, well, she has to be doing something worse than that she definitely is on a revenge kick she can't just it it kind of again it's another twist of this movie when you find that out but it's amazing what i don't know what harold questioned what i thought power was right i would never have thought like she didn't kill adam brody i thought for sure adam brody is dead like there's no there's no question in my mind and i wonder if like this movie while it deconstructs so many things also deconstructs like the idea of what it is to be a hero. You know, because we are looking at the Liam Neesons, we're looking at the Charles Bronsons, we're even looking at the Jennifer Garner who, you know, whatever that movie was called, Velvet or <laughs> Sugar. Domino? Domino, no. Wait, was it Domino or was it something else? No, it was... Uh, Butterscotch? I know what you're it talking was some, about. Yeah, it was some... Uh, Peppermint. Peppermint. Okay, great. Uh, or even uh, Jessica Chastain in that movie that just came out as well. Like, there's all these female revenge flicks. And I think we're we're told, like, when a woman is in power, you have to be scared. Like, there is something, like, they're taking it back. And I think in many ways we want to see that, but it also is unrealistic. And at a certain point, like, that's not happening, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that that is, like, a... You know, when you start killing people, even if they're in the wrong, like you still are killing somebody. So what this movie kind of yeah, does still turns is, into a monster, you know, a movie that I love deeply. But you can't yeah. you can't keep that up for a long time. And and and, you know, as a person, I think I, I toggles back and forth with a lot of issues with violence in movies where I think we've accepted too much just cheap, lame violence. I appreciated so much with the second that I realized with the shock that that's not what this movie was. Yeah, absolutely. Um And this movie, I think, on the surface, as it kind of unrolls itself, presents as one thing, like we're talking about. I think if you were to have a very cursory discussion about it, you could say, oh, it's a, uh, it's, it is a, like, indictment of Me Too culture, like it's, it's taking it to the next level. But I actually think the movie goes deeper. And, and and reading articles with 
Emerald, and I, I want to know if you talk to her about this as well, like the underlying thing that this movie does kind of jump into is obsession and and addiction and the want, you know, to scratch an itch, whether it's good or bad for us, because this character that she is and, and what she is doing, it it's not making her healthy, right? It's not made it's not fixing anything. I love that you use the word addiction because actually when I asked them about it, that is sort of what they were saying they were going for with Cassie. Um, the unsexiest pitch in the world for this movie is it's a revenge movie about why revenge is miserable and futile. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of what it is. And you're absolutely right. Like it is, there's a reason it's quite an uncommon, um, vengeance is quite an uncommon thing because it's harrowing and it, and it, afflicts the person doing it just as much as the person they're doing it to and so really Carrie and I all of our discussions right from the beginning were about you know we were we were talking much more about addiction and self-harm and grief than we were about revenge I think that's mm-hmm. it so happens that that's the kind of salve that this movie in her journey takes but really this could have been a movie where she was addicted to sex, I suppose, or addicted to alcohol or drugs. But it's just, it's that the thing she's addicted to is trying to make things right. I mean, tell me more about that, Carrie. What were you thinking with putting in ideas like addiction into this character? Well, like Emerald said, it wasn't ever... In, it's, we talk about the film so much now, and, and, you know, the descriptions always sort of contain revenge in them. And, and certainly... You know, it, it was, um, it's it's a lot of sort of how the film has been received, but in actually making it, it's so funny talking about a film, you know, a year and a half after you made it, because mm. when we were actually making the film, kind of going into it, you know, I think we had such, a, what was so wonderful about it is that it was a 23 day shoot. There was, you know, Emerald had three weeks of prep time. It was, it was something that came together very quickly and we did. And our, our conversations were so much more about, um, about Cassie's specific personal journey. And I think it struck me that she was somebody who felt that she was acting out of extreme loyalty and love and she's grieving. Um, And this event that happened 10 years before feels as real to her as if it happened yesterday or as present. And that her, you know, her attempts at sort of correcting things or or writing injustice and sort of schooling these men um, is really just a you know it's 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 something that in the moment makes her feel better you know it's in very much like addictive behavior for for that brief moment there's a release of her pain and the pain sort of gets alleviated momentarily and then sure enough you know starts to rebuild and rebuild until the urge takes over again to sort of feel that release and i think that's very much how she's you know coping in the first instance when you meet her in the film and then I think as the film goes on and these sort of ghosts from her past are kind of thrown back in I think that you something starts to sort of um unravel it doesn't feel good anymore um Mm. it doesn't feel good to hear that she was right it doesn't feel good to be denied neither nothing's working you know um and so, you know, as the film goes on and the more people she meets, it doesn't seem like anything works. It doesn't feel good to have proved the Dean wrong and sort of, you know, traumatised her by pretending to have kidnapped her daughter. It doesn't feel good to smash up the car. 
you know, these things have moments of relief in them, but it, there's nothing really sort of um, sort of works anymore. Um, and so she has no choice but to just keep going. You know, and what and what I think is so interesting about that is it when you're setting this film up to be about that, then like about obsession and and addiction over just like simple revenge, you're changing the ben- benchmarks of what success is. Like revenge is something you're like, fine, I got it. You're like, I got you. You're done. I've won. And this is a movie where there is no winning. You know, this is a movie that can't have a happy ending because of what what it's saying about the limits. I mean. To me, this is a movie that really separates the difference between revenge, where it's like, fine, you can knee like your friend's rapist in the crotch, and restitution, which is you are made whole. Your friend didn't kill herself. You know, you have not been living with this loss of your best friend for years. And that's something you can't get. Like, she is not able to get that at all through this movie. And so I respect so much the decision to leave this hollow center here, where you, well, you're not going to ever cheer. And I think, you know, we'll get into the ending, but we'll just say for the purpose of this conversation, the movie doesn't end well for for her. And um, and I think going along that addiction line, it, you know, I, I looked at the movie in a very different way when I thought about it in that point of view, because what addiction does is it creates a momentary high. It, it I think it also uh, gives you this idea that you can uh, get to a place that you can't get to, like it covers up a wound and it cuts you off from people. And what this movie does really well is shows how cut off she is. Like she is an, I wouldn't even say she's an antihero. She is somebody who needs help, right? Cause she's not, you know, she doesn't trust anyone. You see her parents even say like, oh, we thought we lost you for a, a little bit. And there's like this moment where the parents are talking to her as if she is someone who is an alcoholic or a drug addict. Like, you know, who are you? We don't even know who you are anymore. And I think you see that when I thought about it more, I'm like, oh, these choices start to make sense. Like the house is in a, uh, in a way, like in a sense of arrested development, the whole, everything around her is paused and she's still a kid but she's not a kid she's in this house that looks like a dollhouse like everything seems to work towards this idea that uh she is not like this is not working it she may think it's working but it's not you know and and uh and it and it actually really negatively affects her you know uh and, and even being able to to truly trust and, and be with somebody, I think. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when you cast Jennifer Coolidge, uh, you know, anywhere in a movie, you're kind of making some comment on femininity, right? Because like Jennifer mm-hmm. Coolidge is just this over-the-top, beautiful, ultra-feminine, like big lips, big cheeks, big hair, big everything kind of woman. And it you don't get that much of a backstory between Cassie and her mom, but there's something about just Jennifer Coolidge's presence, you know, that they have this living room that's like a dollhouse living room, like you said, where it's really almost overly manicured and uncomfortable. You know, she, when she wants her daughter to leave, she gives her a pink suitcase. Yeah. There's this kind of oppressive, here's how good girls are supposed to act and behave thing that you sense that has been put on her, you know, by her mother and probably by her father just also letting it happen or going along with it. 
I mean, because even the way that Cassie dresses, I think, is interesting. Like, she spends most of the movie in, like, pastels or rainbows, mm-hmm. like, really girly stuff. They have to kind of look at closely to see if it's at all warped or twisted. Yeah. You know? But it's over-the-top girly, kind of ridiculous. I have issues sometimes with Carrie Mulligan's hair in this movie because I think it looks just kind of ridiculous. I can't tell if it's a wig or not, but it's a very unnatural shade of blonde. And a very unnatural shade of curl, but it feels like a put on. It feels like she's wearing being this girly girl as a disguise. Right. Well, I mean, but you see this is a character who is going in disguise. Like when we see her in the middle of the movie, when she is seducing the Sam Richardson character, it's a very different character than she played in the opening of the film. You know, she is changing who she is uh, for each like mark. And not that she's going out with the intent to get Adam Brody or the intent to get Sam Richardson, but she is, she's playing a part. She's like, to me, the way I see it is like she's putting on these personas because she stopped being herself, right? There's something about when her friend who was raped killed herself, she lost herself. And there's a moment in this film with her relationship with Bo Burnham and Bo Burnham is phenomenal in this movie and just, and they are phenomenal together in this movie i love that relationship and uh but that's the only time in the film where we start to see her find herself she leaves the house we see her break a little bit of the monotony of her acting in this movie and i, I say that in the best possible way like she is very regulated you know, uh, and it's in daunting and intimidating and you see her like let down her guard. Um, and it's interesting to see like her coming out of her shell. It's her parents saying like, you're welcome back. Welcome back to the world. But this is a person who I think doesn't know who she is. She's lost herself in, again, I'll keep on saying addiction, but she lost herself in this, this thing. She's no longer, I don't even think she knows why she's doing it. That book is so full of marks. There is no amount of dirt you can put in that hole to fill it up. Like it is, it it is never going to stop. Even though she promises she'll never do it again, it is never going to stop. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips, and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Wait, can we talk then about like her first meeting with Bo Burnham? Because I adore that scene. So Cassie works at this kind of ridiculous coffee shop and like Laverne Cox is her boss. And she's clearly a terrible barista. And Bo Burnham walks in and he's a guy that she knew from medical school. And I don't even remember how it comes up, but he like 
dares her to spit in his coffee or something. Well, he makes he, a joke about it. He makes a joke like, oh, wow, like you were super smart. Why are you working in a coffee shop? OK, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have said that out loud. I didn't mean to say it like that. You can spit in my coffee if you want. And it's very like uh it's very beta male with also not being uh, aggressive. Like, oh, okay, but, but I feel like sometimes people do like a Woody Allen impression. And I feel like, no, this is Bo being gracious and being lovely. And you kind of, you fall for him because he's honest too. And she spits in his coffee and he takes it and, and takes a slug of it. And there's something really, I mean, it's a great meat cute oh, in a way. I thought about that. You know, there's like that famous... 70s rape revenge movie, which I was expecting this to be. I spit on your grave, but this is actually oh, yeah. I spit in your coffee. <laughs> Wait, I actually have to play this clip from the interview. I I asked him about that scene, and I asked him if Bo ever drank the coffee with the spit in it, and this is what they said. The next day was was in the coffee shop. It was Bo. It was our first scene. Yeah, he drank the spit like he actually drank it like about four times for when real. He actually drinks it for real. Yeah. That I mean. That's brave. I don't think he's getting enough credit for that. <laughs> I don't. I mean, did he have to? I can't remember the shot. I can't remember if it's a two. He didn't in the, didn't in the beginning, but I think he got a, a taste for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, to be honest, it was actually we don't use the the kind of two shot in in the film, but mostly he was drinking it when he had to you know in the scene it's not like he was like spit in here even more but no but there was one take where he did it when the camera was on me and I spat in it and he actually drank it off camera because there was an outtake which was on a blooper reel that I don't know where it is but um I can't get through the scene because I've just watched him drink my own spit for real for like the fifth time I think it was quite a lot because it was when we were on you and he sort of goes oh god yeah it was a big one I mean, I'm not going to lie. That makes me a little reminiscent for the pre-COVID era. That's just, that's touching. Very pre-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> no, but Bo is really perfect in this film. I mean, Bo, of course, is the director of Eighth Grade um, and a really, I think, charismatic performer. Uh, yeah, and writer. To me, he reminded me of Charles Grodin. And I can't get anybody else to agree with me on this Charles Grodin trip. Yeah. But I think he has that kind of like... Every man, not beta, but like intelligent, a little different, a little bit, a little bit laid back. Maybe Steve Martin and the key of this. I, okay. I love Charles Grodin. I've read his book. It's a great book. It would be so great if you weren't here. Um, I love his performances, his earlier ones. I love before he got insane. I see what you're saying because people don't ape Charles Grodin. People ape Woody Allen or things like that, like this kind of, uh, ah, uh, and he does something here that's a little bit different. I know Bo, uh, and it's very Bo. Like, and and I, I think I understand what you're getting at. Although when you said it, I was like, "Huh, I don't get that." But what is Charles Grodin? And there is a little neuroticness to him, but there's also a confidence to him. He's successful. He's not schlubby. Um, yeah, there's an and, intelligence and a little bit of a simmering hostility, a little Bugs Bunny kind of energy. Yeah, it's a charm. a charm. I I think that Ben Stiller sometimes runs that, uh, like you know, in in moments, you know, has that kind of um, can have that energy to him. But I think sometimes he goes a little bit more sad, and I think that Bo Burnham is a little bit higher. So, regardless, I think it's a fair comparison because I I would like to talk about Charles Grodin more. Uh, but I love this scene and I love them, and. 
their chemistry really works, right? Like, yes. this, I think the Emerald Fennel just makes you want them to work out as a couple. You're like, Bo comes in the movie. We were talking about Manic Pixie Dream Girls recently. Mm-hmm. And he's almost like this manic pixie dream boy, it feels like, when he first shows up. You know, she's all dour and negative. And here comes this cheerful guy who puts up with a lot of negativity and reflects this light back at her. Like, he's just kind of there and kind of charming. And every time he fucks up in the movie, like when he invites her to come upstairs to his room a little bit too early for her for her taste, I found myself just deflating. Like, I want him to charm her and I want him to make it work. And I want him to be this really good, magical guy. And whenever he's a disappointment, it was just like, no, I felt so personally invested. Well, what I think is so interesting about his character is he does all the right things. Even in the wrong moments, he does all the right things. Um, You know, like, okay, you see it coming, or maybe I did, oh, he's going to maybe reveal himself to be a creep, you know, by inviting her up. And I think he isn't trying to be a creep. He's not trying to take advantage of her, but he's being cute and doesn't understand, like, where she's coming from. She's also coming in with a lot of baggage here, too. Like, he's not taking advantage of her in that moment. Like, I think it's a natural thing, but she's not willing to go there. And as soon as he, like, realizes that, he's like, got it. And let's try it again. And And he doesn't push and when he catches her later in the film with Sam Richardson and and you see this moment where he's like, oh, I'm an idiot. Like, this is what's going on. Like, he plays that really well. Like, he is doing all the right things. And I feel like a fucking idiot because I don't see where it's going, right? Like, I, the this whole movie is an indictment of good people, right? And And he reveals himself not to be a good person, but I want to ask you about this because I guess this is my big question. If you dig deep enough, are we all not good people? Yes. Okay. I'm not so, going to think about that. Yes. Okay. I think, I think that is true. And I think my favorite movies make us admit that. I think all of us, all of us are capable of doing something bad if it benefits us in that moment. Or at and, least thinking about it, coming very close, being tempted. I think I think we would probably actually be a better, more peaceful society if we could just admit that about ourselves and then say we're all trying together to do the right thing. Well, we talk about this, um, you know, in Eternal Sunshine. Would you date someone if you knew all the things about them, right? Could you date someone if you found out that all their dark secrets and... Um, You know, I think what this movie does, and there's two things at play, because I think that we're telling the story, her arc is about, uh, well, I'll just say it's about addiction. And, and I think they were also telling the story about the completion of this revenge or, or what she's going to do. Because even when she gets the main guy in her sight, um, she is not intending to kill him, right? She's intending to shame him, but probably shame him in the most aggressive way uh, out of all, like she is going to carve, uh, you know, her friend's name into his chest. But, but on that level, he's going to live. He's not dying. It's not, you know, but she is going to shame him the worst. Um, yeah, and her motivation behind it is like, you're still here. And she had to leave. She got kicked out of school. She's no longer on this planet. Like she got known as your victim. So now you have to be known with her name. Which right, you is, have to carry uh, this. You have to carry yeah. this weight. 
it's an argument that I think makes a lot of emotional sense as a person who I would hope never would carve a name in somebody's chest and hope never, hopefully, I, I hope I'm never driven to carve a name in anybody's chest. Her reasoning behind it is, is, has some grounding. It really does. I, well, I think that that's the interesting thing about this film is I get what she's doing. When you realize that she's revealing all these people, like, what's the harm? What's the harm in, in telling Chris Mintz-Platz that you think you're the nice guy, you think you're this, um, you know, you're mansplaining, you're, you know, what's the harm in it? She's actually doing a service. And you see what, what Sam Richardson's character, she, like, he's like, you're that crazy person. And she's like, and there's more of us. Like, she's creating this fear amongst men. It's almost, it That's is. That's what makes her Joker-ish. She's like, we are 100%. here. You cannot predict what's going to happen. But I do believe what this movie does and makes this question is that going back to that question, are we all bad people? Absolutely. And if you dig enough on anyone, you will find something that we have done that will upset you. And that, and, and I'm going to, I know this movie is about sexual assault and I know this movie is about rape and, uh, but it's interesting because it's also a movie that freezes everyone in their worst moment, right? They're no mm-hmm. better than their worst moment. You know, and this is not just men. This is women. This is this is everyone in her life. I mean, everyone in her life is frozen in their in their worst moment to a certain extent. And I think going back to that dinner scene where she brings uh where she brings Bo home, the moment unfreezes, right? We get to move forward. We get to see like, oh, this is going on, but she's kind of pulled back in this thing and and I don't know maybe I'm really conflicted here because if it's a real what Bo is revealed to have done is be there at this rape this this I mean it's not even it's not a gang rape but it's a fraternity house rape that he was a part of in watching it and and it makes you question like is he a good person should he be a doctor should he be penalized should he be it offers up a very big question of who is responsible because Connie Britton has the same issue. She didn't do anything and she brought this guy back to speak to students. Like, is she, should she have that job? Like, there are so many questions here that are, I think are really thorny to answer because, well, I know him now. I see Bo now. I've spent this whole movie with him. I, I feel like I understand who he is. I feel like this is not the same guy who was that guy. But he is that guy. And is it okay that there was no punishment for that guy? And what is the punishment for that guy? And what is it? I don't know. It, it, you know, it opens up so many questions. And forgive me if I am, to anyone listening, not doing a service. I'm trying to be respectful to it, but I'm also trying to open up, I think, the question of the movie, which is like, who is good, who is bad, and how long? And I don't know. Can you find anyone who would live up to these standards. Yeah, I mean, when we meet Cassie, she feels like every person on this planet is disappointing. Yes. And the way that she walks through the world kind of ensures that every person she meets will continue to disappoint her. And it's a horrible, self-destructive, self-defeating place to be for, you know, for her. She... She can't have joy in her life ever because of the rules that she's made for what is good and what is bad. And 
as a side tangent, I guess, to the question of like, is everybody bad and is and what is and isn't forgivable is I think this question of like, how much are you willing to lose in your personal life for yourself? How much joy is she willing to give up? Which turns out to be pretty much everything. She's willing to kind of spend her life in anger. And it, it's hard because you see her and the potential that she, it seems like she and Bo have to be happy and joyous and you want them to work out. But then at the same time, when she yells at Bo and she breaks up with him for the final time and she leaves and like, then he's interrogated by the cops, he basically sells her out. You know, he goes to the guy's wedding. He picks a side and he doesn't pick her side. Yeah. It's, it's She has done an excellent job pushing him away and trying to like, not just like, push him away from her, push him across a bridge, burn the bridge. She's not trying to let him come after her. But at the same time, that's where he is. He stay, He stays on the enemy camp when the chips kind of fall. And to yeah. see him sell her out like that really hurts. And it's hard to say, like, does that mean he was always bad or corrupted? Or does it mean that she made that happen? Like, did she, did she, did she set up this domino chain? I felt the betrayal was much more in him now betraying her than him as a college student. Because I think when you hear that videotape, when you see that, when you hear this, what happened, right? There is an energy to it that feels party-like, right? And there's an energy to the description of the story that was like, oh, well, we didn't know and we didn't see. And it's not as, nothing is black and white. And I think she's trying to make very black and white decisions, right? And and it doesn't feel like, oh, Bo is a bad guy in this moment. He's like, oh man, like you know, he's. I don't know. It's hard. I'm 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 stumbling on my own words because I don't want to. No, but it's complicated. Uh, yeah. It's complicated by the fact that we don't actually even see. We see her face and we hear his voice on the tape. We see her face yeah. as she watches it. I mean, it and sounds... he's not videotaping it, but he's there, yeah. and there's a bunch of other people there, and every one of these people, even her friend Allison Bree was complicit in it too. And they sent it around in a way that wasn't like, look at this crime. And I also think that like, as a culture, we are getting smarter and we're getting more reflective and we're getting a little bit more, not that any, that not that this is ever right, but we are also in a world where 12 years ago, Girls Gone Wild videotapes were being sold every night on late night TV. And it was like, yeah, no big deal. This dude goes around and makes women super drunk, show their breasts, sign a release, and he owns them and they're on tape for the rest of their life or whatever they are. And, and that was fine. That's like a, that's a late night TV commercial. Like, would that ever happen now? No, the fuck? No way. No, but But, you're really right. It's like this indictment, I guess, of the 2000s, you know, of when she would have gone to medical school, like of a culture where this stuff actually seemed normal. Like, the people that she's mad at today, like Alison Brie, they don't even really remember this crime because it was just part of the atmosphere of being alive at that moment. And it's why I really like that the soundtrack has, you know, Paris Hilton on it, Britney Spears on it, women who I think got really chewed up in the 2000s, you know, that they were stared at and mocked and like laughed at and kind of in these cultural punching bags. You know, this idea of like what was acceptable, you know, in the early 2000s is kind of mind-boggling. I mean, there's this rampant misogyny. I think that you can even see that in like a documentary like uh, the Free Britney documentary on Hulu right now, like, and how this kind of shares the same pond as as that. 
Yeah, that documentary is really great, by the way. I'm glad you brought it up. We were awful to young women. To young women who were like, I, maybe I'm speaking for a lot of people out there. They were kind of like my peers. And I feel really bizarre about it now. Like, I don't understand how any woman of my generation survived, like living through that decade. And just all of the stuff we internalized, that it was okay to like absolutely destroy these people, call them sluts all the time in public, call them crazy all the time in public. Everything we did to Lindsay Lohan, which we talked touched on in yeah. our Mean Girls episode. You know, we talk all, all the time on the show, especially when we're going through the original AFI list of like things that haven't aged well. And I feel like we are, we try to be careful not to be like, tisk tisk tisk, you dummies. And I think it's important because we lived through one. We all participated in one. We participated in the mass destruction of any young female in the public eye for like a decade. And I think we Absolutely. all participated in on the sliding scale to different degrees. Like maybe we weren't, you know, calling Britney Spears like a crazy skank who is losing her kids on Family Feud. That clip is insane. But we were laughing or passing on jokes. Well, or but, like I mean, you look at that documentary and you see everybody making jokes. You look at Diane Sawyer and the way that Diane Sawyer treats. And you, Diane Sawyer is like a bastion of what we were, uh, you know, re, you know, think of as acceptable, great journalism, I guess, you know, on some level. And, and, and you see it. And I think this clip has been passed around a lot this week of Craig uh, Ferguson, who's like, I'm not making Britney jokes. Like, why are we doing this? Like, and it's interesting how time dictates things differently. We were talking about this the other day. I was reading this Kobe Bryant book and, and it goes very much into the rape charges. And I never really saw in black and white what that was, but the way it was construed in the media, it really, I mean, there's all this victim blaming. It's all this, this guy came back and played and, and he admitted to, I mean, he admitted to rape and it was like, okay, but that's, that's okay. Like, let's move forward. And I think Roxanne Gay did an amazing job at writing an article about reconciling who he was and what he did and, and, and how he should be remembered. But there's a lot that we all are growing and, and, and getting smarter and better about. But it was so close. It seems so like it's not like 1970, not 1960. This is a couple of years no, ago. We were grown ups. And and the book you're talking about, uh, Three Ring Circus, is so good. And I really like and admire the way that the writer laid out the facts of the Kobe Bryant case, because I think it's also really easy, you know, to be confused by what the story is. Like now it's really common that we talk about the media and how things get played around. And for me, going back and looking at some of the touchstone stories of when I was like young and not doing too much research on my own, less than I should have been, the stories as they were and the stories as how I thought they are were are so radically different. You know, know, Kobe Bryant being one of them, Monica Lewinsky being a huge one. Like, you know, being younger than Monica Lewinsky, I never realized oh. how young she was until I became a grown up. It's another I, I, one of these jokes, but it gets hidden in the way. I mean, I grew up also, and this is like not about sexism, but Bernard Getz. Like when you actually understand the Bernard Getz story, like it's so much more disturbing. But yeah, you're right. Like the media takes control and we find our heroes and villains and we just move on. And then we never go back to correct. Exactly. And yeah, like the Paris on the soundtrack, the Britney on the soundtrack, it really made me think of that. Like I, I love the Paris Hilton song on this. Like I think it's just so good. But hearing this song kind of get reclaimed, a song that I always thought was really dumb. And in this movie becomes like epic and wonderful and is catchy. Just the song choices alone kind of pushed me in the direction of like reframing what I thought maybe Emerald was even trying to say about an entire decade. So I had to ask her about it. I think so much of this film really is about, and, and the soundtrack is is kind of using pop music that is so often like used ironically mm. or 
sort of yeah it's kind of well like multicolored manicures and ha wearing kind of beautiful sort of girly clothes it's sort of synonymous with being like frivolous and silly yeah. but it's just not I have no it's just completely mad that I don't know who decided that and and you know someone like Paris not only is it an amazing song but you know she herself I think is a perfect example of somebody who was who was part you know this this culture the things that we're talking about in this movie happened to her you know and it's so I don't know I think it's yeah we we all need to re-examine our behavior those those years really by the way that whole interview is up on youtube and i want to say thank you so much to the american cinematheque for uh letting us use some clips if you want to watch the whole thing it's like 45 minutes long i look very should. sleepy they look very wonderful um but yes it is online and you should definitely watch it they're doing a lot of really cool stuff like this whole oscar season interviewing people and you can watch most of their zooms for free so totally check it out not not to like plug my own shit but like on black monday like we have these jokes in the show that are able to have our 2021 perspective on the 80s. Like, when you talk about Revenge of the Nerds, like, that's a movie where, like, they rape someone. The hero rapes somebody, right? And it's, like, not a big deal. You know, uh, it, we, you know, Michael Jackson was dating Brooke Shields. Now, regardless of where all that was, as a society, Michael Jackson's an adult dating a teenager, right? Like, and we didn't question it. Like, and we didn't question, you know, whether it's Jerry uh, Seinfeld. Jerry dating, Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, dating a 17-year-old. Right? Saying he waited you know, till she was 18, but mm, come on. But but there is something about this, and we talk about this a lot on our show, which is like now that we are woke, or and I hate to use that term because I feel like sometimes woke belittles what we are. Now that we are more we're trying to do better. And, yeah, trying yeah. to do better and, and open our eyes. And I think, we, the, the, you know, this year that this movie comes out is a year of a lot of eye-opening. Like, I need to be involved. I need to be aware. I need to educate myself. And some people don't want to do that. That's fine. But this idea of we're calling out certain things, whether it's talking about John Wayne. And we can't, like, do we cancel? You know, people are like, you can't cancel John Wayne. It's like, well, we're not canceling John Wayne, but we're putting the we're putting him in a perspective of a time. Like, you know, and... Yes, what John Wayne was saying at that time, and, and I'm not saying John Wayne is the only person, I'm just saying that let's use him as an example, you know, or the way he acted. Um, yeah, there's ramifications to it. Why there's blackface in swing time. Like, things change. People change. And this movie, I think, is also an indictment of, and again, a term I hate to use, but cancel culture. Like, can, do we judge people on their past when everybody else is doing it or do we judge them on the now when hopefully they've learned and i think what's interesting about bo's character is bo didn't learn we thought he might have learned but if he didn't go to that wedding if he tells the cops then he learned in a way right uh, you know, and that's the difference of what he's doing now versus what he did in the past. And I, I actually just saying that out loud makes me kind of understand this movie a little bit more. It's, it's, it's a lot of issues that they're attacking and it's not simple and it's thorny and it's and and it's it's complicated. And I think what's kind of great about it is we're seeing her perspective of the event uh, and other people's perspectives are different from the event as well. You know, even Alison Brie talking about it. But she, what she does to Alison Brie is pretty fucking 
reprehensible. I mean, that's probably the hardest act of the entire film, in my opinion. Yeah. What she does is, you know, get Alison Brie really drunk um, and then have an, a man, an actor there, like kind of take Alison Brie when she's passed out to a hotel room and have Alison Brie wake up in the morning thinking she got drunk and, you know, was taken advantage of or willingly had sex with this really handsome stranger. And when you're watching the movie yourself, you don't know that that's not what happened. Like you actually believe that that actually happened for a long time um, before you find out that really Cassie just like had her taken upstairs and tucked her to bed, like had the guy tuck her to bed. Wait, that do you think that that's true? Probably... I don't... Wait, I think he, he raped I, her. I or I think he had. Oh, oh no, wait. I don't think so. I think Cassie just wanted her to understand what it felt like to feel the shame of wondering what happened to you. Into one. Oh who's wow! I thought she was. You really think? I thought she. Yes, I a hundred percent. I think that what she did was let her off the hook. You do? She said it didn't have. Oh, apps. Because look, she hired that fucking ru- Russian dude to kill Alfred Molina or beat the shit out of him. Well, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. You know, like I believe that what she did in that moment was a courtesy by saying it didn't happen, so she didn't have to live with it. You are a dark man, Paul Shear. Oh, I mean, it's just for the taking. I mean, I think that that is, <laughs> I mean, I, I believe I, I believe that until someone tells me otherwise, because I, I would go on more on your side if that man wasn't waiting outside Alfred Molina's house. Okay, but what about the fact that she lets Connie Britton think that her teenage daughter is like getting drunk with her favorite band and then she's like, she's fine. She's getting a soda. Because her daughter didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a way to get to Connie Britton and to make shake Connie her have to empathy. Her... Yeah. Yes, and also I think put in Connie's head like, oh, this girl, this woman can get to my family, right? Like it, it that's a shockwave moment. But she would never hurt the daughter. The daughter is just a kid. The kid did nothing. Um, Actually, you know what then we're Breed talking about then? Like her yeah. number one revenge with these people is empathy. Like, do you ever feel that way when you're listening to this modern politics that like people don't understand a lesson until it happens to them? The people who are oh, like, yeah, the capital now that riots, my dad I mean, yeah. is dying from COVID, I actually believe it's not a hoax. Or now that I'm dying yeah. from COVID, I believe it's not a hoax. There's something about this forced empathy that she makes them have. You know, like well, it's your daughter, it's your life because well, these people can't understand it otherwise. I, well, that's why I'm very curious about a gun control law coming through the Senate in, in the coming months or whatever happens. Because here's people who have, you know, they've experienced something that, you know, a lot of kids in different schools when we were in schools were experiencing like school shooters and lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And these people will now have lived through it. And there's a different thing Like you can. How can you. If you lived in fear of your life, like there's, you know, um, because I guarantee you, if the kids who lived through school shootings made the rules, you would have different legislation on on gun control. Like, and I cannot uh, wait to vote for more of them into office. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating, but it's like, yeah, you're right. Like sometimes we don't have the ability to truly see or get out of our own way, Um, and I think that you're right. Like she, what she does is gets them all to have that pit in their stomach, that pit of, I'm a piece of shit. Like, and I think like with Chrisman's plots, like his character, when she does that to him, when she reveals him, because that's a really, that's the only scene that we really see her do her thing. Um, you feel like 
he will live with that and feel like he she's doing you know she's uncovering him and making him see himself i yeah you're right and and you know i think he, she makes connie britton a better i think she makes connie britton a better person i think that she makes allison brie a better person i on some level i mean allison brie coming with that tape now by the way allison brie also wrecks her life because if that tape wasn't revealed if that that tape reopens the wound. That tape is the crack pipe pushed to her one more time. Okay, if you keep on digging, you're gonna you're gonna keep on going down. You know you the, you know there's no easy way out. Um, and it's interesting because her past comes back to haunt her twice. There, she did an act. It came back, and it came back again. And and uh, you know with the tape as well. I don't know. It's ooh. Now I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, this is a really <laughs> this is a twisty turny. This is, you know, MC Escher-esque. I'm like, where are the stairs going, up or down? Like, you know, there's so many nooks and crannies in here. That's why I'm so glad we're talking about it. Like, and I'm really yeah. curious to know what other people listening to this episode think about it. Because to me, it's my, my favorite film to talk about of the year. And can you imagine, by the way, how torturous it was for me to see this film last January and not be able to talk about it until now? We're talking like 13 months. How evil is yeah. that? No, and, and you know, it's... Uh, I think that there needs to be more movies like this. I had a conversation with a friend who was like texting me while watching it. And he's like, this movie is the fucking worst. And and I was like, what do you mean? I I you know, like I, I want to read you some of the text because it was it was so interesting. Like, I think that some people can't even go there because it isn't like if your expectation is what you want it to be. Like if you want it to be her, like, you know, karate chopping these guys, it's not that it's, it's her performance. Her as an actress in this film is so still. And while everyone's freaking out, and I actually think that Emerald Fennel, we talked about this a little bit. I think she let those other actors really unravel and mm-hmm. make Carrie Mulligan even more still because they look like they are falling apart around. They, they literally are falling apart at the seams. And it makes their performance bigger. Everyone is bigger against her. Except for, I think, Clancy Brown and uh, and Jennifer Coolidge. Um, and Bo. Um, and it's it's interesting to watch. And it's that manicness of, okay, I made a mistake. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to, uh, and you don't know where to go. And it and, and I think it makes every one of those scenes right. way more She doesn't more give them a way out of those conversations. No. And she doesn't give yeah. herself a way out either. No, and it's all right. And read these, me the yeah. texts. All right, these texts. Uh, okay, so, okay, so he go. He goes. I don't get this movie, and I go. What is there not to get? You know, um, and you know, and he's like, I mean, this may just be a, just a dumb friend of mine. He's like, well, what is a video show? And I'm like, well, but I'm, I'm, yeah, like I'm like trying to explain it. And he's like, it's a kitten. She, it's a kitten punching an ostrich. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, all these questions are actually, as I'm reading them now, I'm just like, these are dumb. He's like, well, <laughs> did she kill the daughter of the dean? Who was Alfred Molina? What? What happened to Adam Brody? Why doesn't she kill them? It Aww. makes it too lightweight. I, I mean, think your friend was drunk. I mean, I know. Like, some of the things are just like, you can't follow a plot. But this is a good point here, which is like this. Why not kill them? It makes it lightweight. Sorry, what if Christian Bale just scared people in American Psycho? This movie is lame. <gasps> and I'm like, that isn't the thing. Like, Christian Bale, and that's the difference here, is that we are trained to want to see violence, right? Um, this movie could happen. She could have a book full of men that she's scared. No one's going to go to the police. 
Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that Connie Britton's going to go to the police? She knows exactly who she is. But what did she do? Nothing. She yeah. did nothing but scare what her. What are the guys going to do to go to the police? I took home this girl who was drunk. And as I was trying to take her clothes off against her will, she got mad at me. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or like, what did this person do? Oh, she dropped my daughter. Do- my daughter asked for a ride to a diner and she dropped her off there because mm-hmm. but she threatened me because I didn't prosecute her. Like it. And there's something really, I think. I just, again, going back to the idea of like, what is power? What is control? And I think we often are viewed as like, Liam Neeson is powerful and in Mm -hmm. control. He'll take down all those terrorists and he will get his daughter back. And here, you know, uh, you know, those movies are so easily summed up. Once they get to the top, it's all going to be fine. And if she did not get killed in this movie, she would not, it's not better. She would not be better. Carving... Her friend's name into his chest doesn't make anything better. By the way, that is probably something she could go to jail for, mm-hmm. you know, on some level if that guy wanted to reveal that. Um, but I mean, and that's what I think is so interesting, because even when he kills her, I have sympathy for that character because he is tied up in bed. And here's a woman with a knife. We now understand her. We don't know what's going on. And he is fighting for his life. And, and you see how, I mean, there's a a lot of decisions he makes after that, that I don't agree with. I'm just saying, but you see how these moments can get completely caught up. And I don't, I guess I don't, (laughs) let's separate everything else. In that moment, I understand what he's doing. I don't think he's trying to kill her. I think he's trying to save himself. And it's a it's a survival of the fittest kind of moment. Every decision after that, we can pick apart in in a million ways. But that moment is a it's such a it's such a base instinct. There's it's hard. This movie is a hard movie to parse out. Yeah, and him know. as the big bad, he's yeah. kind of a lame guy, right? He's not like yes. some, you know, like evil, cruel, handsome, young Johnny Depp-looking, awful rapist Lothario, mean bastard guy. Uh, He looks like a dingus. He looks like an absolute idiot dingus. He looks like, you know, he would have gone to school with Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, this is a Brett Kavanaugh, I'm hanging out with Squeamy kind of movie. Like, these things happen. I'm at school. Everybody's drunk. And it's a bro code of silence. I mean, I think we have to address the fact also, the casting here is interesting. The big bad right at the end, is someone we don't know. In a movie of, I mean, this person is a great actor, has been in other things. He's in Veronica Mars. But I think it's interesting because every other guy in this film is the fun best friend in something, the nerdy fun guy, whether it's Adam Brody from The O.C., whether it's, you know, McLovin from Superbad, whether it's Sam Richardson from Veep, these these are the beta males that we are seeing. These are, you know, there's there's an energy here. Uh, Max Greenfield, Schmidt from, you know, like his character, even on New Girl has like, I, I have sex with women. Like, you know, like there's this light, like there's something really specific about all these characters being these types of people. So I think she's like, in a way, kind of subverting expectations by making the big bad somebody that you don't recognize. Um, and he plays it really, really well. And you're right, he's boring and he's, and he's normal and he is, uh, you know. Yeah. Ordinary yeah. people do awful things and forget about it. Ordinary people do awful things. I mean. Can I confess yeah. something um, as we wrap this up? This is maybe a little bit embarrassing, but, you know, at the end of the year, Spotify is like, here's what you listen to. 
My number one song last year at Spotify was Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind, 100% only because of this film. I mean, it's, by the way, it's great. Uh, (laughs) I love it. It is a banger. I didn't know how much I liked that song until this movie. Well, look, I mean, that's a sign of a good movie. If It's got you into Paris Hilton's singing career. Um, <laughs> I love this movie. I think this movie is a great conversation. I think you should watch it with friends so you can have a conversation like Amy and I are having here because I think it's meant to, very much like One Night in Miami, a movie meant to make you think. Yeah. There's no right or wrong answer here. There is no black and white and... And I think that we're so used to our films being that way. Like what my friend said, Christian Bale, you know, would he just scare people? It, It's not that movie, but we're trained to be like, that's the only way. Mm-hmm. What are we really talking about? And I think it makes her character incredibly sympathetic and damaged. And and I mean, and I, I think like the, the casting is so specific. Alfred Molina is amazing in this movie. We didn't get to talk to him about that much, but I love... You know, he is somebody who's come to terms with who he is. And you see how it's destroyed him as well. It's like, it's... Um, yeah, in a movie with so much colorful production design, you go inside his house and his plants are dead and everything is gray. Isn't it the reverse Boogie Nights scene? Like, oh. he come, like she comes into this world. I think this movie talks to other films, really, because it does talk to pop culture. It talks to, like you said, Paris Hilton. It talks to Adam Brody. It talks to, you know, he come, she comes into this reverse Boogie Nights. He's in a bathrobe. He's disheveled he's (laughs) fucked up he's like i've lived a fucking i'm a shit person and here i am and that's what she wanted everyone to do and he does make the right choice at the end and we love him for it right or or we don't hate him as much for it yeah he stuck up for her right yeah Yeah. and i think but there is something about redemption there too and Mm -hmm. you know like okay you she just needed everybody else to say they knew it was wrong and they could yes and and that and I think we're in a culture, speaking of what you said before, where apologizing is the hardest thing to do. And we see it time and time again. Apologizing is hard. I say it to myself all the time in my own relationships, like just apologize. But we feel like there's so much guilt that goes with apologizing that it's very hard to do. And uh and I can say it logically, but emotionally, I know that that's mm-hmm. a hard thing. And I, I think when you're on a public stage, it's even much harder. So I think we see these janky ass apologies, you know, uh, whether it's Vanessa Hudgens being like, look, people are going to die from COVID. No big deal. Or it's, you know, Ellen DeGeneres addressing her work staff or it's Louis C.K. addressing these allegations against his, you know, uh, sexual assault claims. Like people just don't know how to do it. And I don't I think it's hard. I think it's hard to do in your personal life. I think it's hard to do in your public life. And. Boy, oh boy, this movie just went in <laughs> so many different directions. Um, it does. Now, I want to kick a question to the listeners out there to tell us on Twitter. Because after I rewatched this film with my boyfriend, we had like the longest debate about something in the movie. And I just want other people to weigh in on what they think it means mm-hmm. too. And you, Paul, I want to hear from you too. But it is the final thing that we see in the film. She sends a text message. And the text message has a certain emoticon at the end Mm. of it. And I have a thousand theories on why that emoticon, what it means. Is it a good emoticon? Does it capture the ending? Is it a bad um, ending with that emoticon? You know, the winky face. Yeah. And I just want to know other people's take on the winky face. 
I really do. Like, does it mean she's sort of joking about it all at the end of the day? Like, where, how does the emoticon fit into everything? That's another thing I asked Emerald about and she wouldn't tell me. So I want you to tell me what you think the emoticon Oh, I love it. And I would love to chat with you about what I think it is too. Amy, this has been great. I would love to do more of these with you just to kind of have a free flowing conversation about a film uh, that is just recently out where I don't have fully you know, my whole thought process. I think it's kind of fun to have a messy conversation about these things and and kind of pick it apart because this was a messy fucking movie. And I will tell you this and much, I, I did not want it to end. Bit of the mess. I did not want this movie to end. And I have <laughs> talked to other people like, this movie was too intense for me, but I just, I loved it. I loved it. I loved the, every thing about it. And I watched it twice so far. And, uh, and I don't know, it's just, it's thorny and it's good performances and it's great direction and it's great writing. And, uh, and I love, I think if you don't like it, that is so fine. You don't have to like it, <laughs> but, uh, but I hope it makes you think about some things too, you know, mm-hmm. because I think it's so easy to say, oh, well, it's bullshit. It's all, you know, it's not up to my expectations, but let it be what it is, not what you expect it to be. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I like that. That's a good mantra for all things. Let it be what it is, not what you expect it to be. I love it, Amy. Uh, Well, this is our special episode, and we'll be back with our regular scheduled episodes uh, when you get to regularly scheduled episodes. Yeah, let's go out with a little bit of Paris Hilton. What do you say? I could listen to it one more time. Love it. Love it. Let's open up some Doritos in the store. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.